Our sermon passage this morning is Genesis chapter 42 and 43. If, again, if you have a few Bible, that's on page 35 to 37. Uh, if you have your own Bible, it's very beginning. Book of Genesis. The title of the message is Bread, Grace, and Hope. Bread, grace, and hope. And a couple of months ago, I uh, started off a, a message talking about the word victory. And kind of asking, what does that look like? What does victory look like? And kind of want to ask a similar question with a synonym today. And that word is triumph. What does triumph look like in our world? What does triumph look like in our lives? What does triumph look like in a naturalistic world that doesn't want God on the throne? Right? What does it look like in business or in government? Is it just only the strong survive? Right? Survival of the fittest? But what is the story of the Bible? And how does it confront that worldview? What do we see in Scripture about triumph? And what have we already seen in Genesis? I think the book of Genesis paints a pretty good picture for us of this idea. It doesn't start off very well, does it? Right? Adam and Eve in the garden, they sin against God. They're cursed. The ground is cursed. God says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And it's the beginning of really just relationships, human relationships being broken, and there being strife in relationships. It's not just marriage, it's all relationships, right? We have a hard time dealing with other people, right? We're in that broken world. In the very next chapter, their son, Cain, is angry with God because God didn't accept his sacrifice. And God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. Same thing, same exact words he said to Eve. But you must rule over it. Right? You must triumph over sin. So it's not just dealing with other people, right? Interpersonal relationships that can be difficult. We have to deal with sin, and we have to deal with our own hearts as well, right? And that can make life pretty difficult. Then we read the story of the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? We've been following these guys who kind of have made a mess of things. God has given them all these promises, all these promises about how He is going to triumph, how they need to trust Him. And they just continue to do things their own way, right? And we see the consequences of that over and over and over. And we've been looking the last few weeks at the lives of Jacob's sons, Twelve sons started off in chapter 37. Joseph being the favorite son of his father, Jacob. He has these dreams that he tells to his brothers. And what do they say? Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? This is kind of our cultural narrative right now, isn't it? Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do, right? I'm in charge. Nobody's going to triumph over me. to ask ourselves, we need to look inward, and we need to ask, what does triumph look like 
ourselves? Is, is it our own hopes and dreams that are ruling and reigning in our lives? Or is it God as He has revealed Himself to us in human flesh? Again, that's really what the message of Christmas is all about, isn't it? It's about God coming and triumphing. And we can tell these great stories at Christmas time. We can try to rewrite the narrative, right? We can try to just pretend that the story isn't what the story really is, right? The image of a baby in a manger who is the prophesied Savior of the world, that is a haunting tale to a world that doesn't want God on the throne. But we can't get away from it, right? Jesus isn't going anywhere. If he doesn't come back for another 5,000 years, the story of Christmas isn't going anywhere. Maybe it won't be celebrated as widely, but we can't get away from it, right? All these efforts, all these years to destroy the Bible, to Christianity out of our culture, yada, yada, yada. There it is every year, right? S staring us smack in the face. And we're confronted with it, and we have to deal with it. Our scripture passage for this morning, it not only addresses those in our world who want to shut God out, it addresses our own hearts as well. We face spiritual famine. We face guilt. We face fear. But the Savior who came as a baby in a manger speaks a message of life and grace and hope to us in the midst of famine and fear and guilt. Again, just kind of a little bit of context for where we've been. Been looking at the life of Joseph. Talked about his favoritism of his father and his dreams. We're going to see some of that kind of unfold here today. In chapter 39, Joseph is uh, he's sold by his brothers into Egypt. He ends up down in Egypt and he ends up in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife is after him and she kind of tricks him and... Potiphar thinks he was trying to sleep with his wife, and so he throws him into prison. So here's Joseph in prison. He ends up there, uh, ends up interpreting some dreams for Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and Pharaoh's chief baker. Uh, they end up getting out of prison. One is exalted back to his position. The, the chief cupbearer, the chief baker, is killed. Joseph said to the chief cupbearer, hey, when you get out, just all you got to do is remember me, right? Remember me to Pharaoh, and then everything will be all good, okay? Well, two years go by, and finally, the, the chief cupbearer has forgot Joseph for two years. Two years go by. Finally, Pharaoh dreams these dreams about this famine that is going to come, and the chief cupbearer says, oh, I remember, there's this guy, and he's in prison, right? Like, he interpreted my dreams. You should talk to him. And, well, so Joseph comes out. Talks to Pharaoh, tells him what the dreams are about, has this master plan of how they're going to store all this grain away and provide for the famine that's coming. And that's kind of how we left off last week. We ended chapter 41 with the, the plan starting to unfold and all the world is starting to come to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. Now we're going to unpack chapter 42 and 43 today. If you have your outline, you can look at that. Um, kind of three headings there. Bread triumphs over famine, grace triumphs over guilt, and hope triumphs over fear. We're going to walk through these in order, but especially when we get to chapter 43, they're kind of, these themes are happening all over the place, so it doesn't, it doesn't unfold perfectly, but just kind of keep those three themes in mind. That's kind of our big, big themes for, for this morning. Well, let's begin uh, by looking at 
chapter 42. We're going to read all of chapter 42, and then we'll just kind of narrate uh, some of chapter 43. So let's go to God's Word here, Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as you said, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, said to them Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. 
Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the family of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs of sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned, chapter 41 ended this way. It said, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all the land. So all the earth is coming to Joseph, coming to Egypt to buy grain. So we begin this section, bread triumphs over famine. Jacob sends ten of his sons, minus Benjamin, down to Egypt to buy grain. He says that we may live and not die. So this is life or death situation going on here. But notice that he doesn't send Benjamin. Right? Jacob's favoritism towards his son, sons continues. Joseph was the favorite son, the son of Rachel, the one who Jacob really loved, and Jacob favored Joseph. But now he thinks Joseph is dead, and Benjamin is Joseph's full brother by Rachel. And so he, we see him later say that he's the only one, right? That he's his only son. He calls him his only son when there's ten others. But this favoritism continues. It's basically Jacob saying, the rest of you guys, you know, you're expendable, whatever. Like, if you go down to Egypt and they kill you, then whatever. But I'm not going to lose my last son, okay? A lot of dysfunction going on in this family. Joseph's brothers come and notice what we see in verse 6. They bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now, they're doing that because he's this high-up Egyptian guy, right? They have no idea who he is. But they bow their faces to the ground. And he recognizes them, okay? 
Here's this ragtag group of ten brothers, probably bearded, you know, long hair, got their clothes on their, that show, you know, where they're from, they're speaking Hebrew. He probably knows pretty much right away. I'm sure he recognizes them. But Joseph, he's clean-shaven, right? He's got on these fancy Egyptian clothes, and he's speaking Egyptian. He's speaking through an interpreter. So they don't know who he is. They're totally in the dark. And they bow down to him. And what does it say in verse 8? Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. God is fulfilling what he had promised, that Joseph's brothers would come and bow down to them. Him. Now imagine how Joseph could have, could have responded here. Ha! I told you guys! Right? I told you you were going to bow down to me. Start dancing in front of him, like rubbing in their face, right? He could have done that. But God has humbled him. Right? God's put him through some pretty tough stuff in his life. He's a lot older and a lot wiser now. Instead of revealing who he is and rubbing it in their faces. He questions them. He questions them in order to test them. He says in verse 9 and 10, you are spies. And the brothers are like, oh no, we're not spies. We don't, you know, we don't want to be killed. We're not here for any trouble. We're just a bunch of brothers. We came for some food because everybody's starving. We heard that you have food. We're honest men. <laughs> Right? Honest. Like when we thought we were going to kill you and sell you all those years ago, and Dad still doesn't know, right? We are honest men. He gets them to spill the beans about their family situation, right? Dad is still alive. Dad's back in Canaan. He's alive. Benjamin is still alive. Now imagine Joseph when these guys arrive, right? Ten brothers, if he knows right away that they're his brothers, he knows who's missing, he knows Benjamin's not there, what do you think Joseph is thinking? Well, they wanted to kill me, right, and they threw me into a pit, he's probably thinking, his first thought is, where is Benjamin? What have you guys done to my brother, to my only blood brother? And then you know, they say, well, and one is no more, right? <laughs> Interesting. So he tests them. He says, bring Benjamin back to me, or off with your heads. You say that this younger brother of yours is really alive, prove it, okay? Puts them, he puts them into custody for a few days. Again, Joseph has every right here to take them out, right? He could wipe them out. He could have gotten even. But God has bigger plans for this family. God has plans for reunion and reconciliation. Next week we're going to see that. So I know a lot of you are going to be gone. So if you can't be here, at least read chapter 44 and 45. But Joseph needs to know if his brothers have changed. Joseph needs to know if he can trust them. Is Benjamin really alive? Or did they try to kill him and sell him off too? Yeah, Joseph wasn't, he wasn't too quick here to take matters into his own hands. He could have demanded justice. He could have said, you guys need to get what's coming to you. I don't know about you, but 
I insert myself in the story, that's what I want, right? I want justice in this situation. I want the brothers to go down for what they've done to me, right? You guys sinned against me. You guys hurt me. I don't know if you've ever taken some of those personality tests, and they're all different, but some of them show, like, high justice. That's me. I'm, like, way off the charts on the justice, right? I want, I want justice. Let these brothers have it. And that's why I need to preach the gospel to myself. That's why I need to remind myself that I don't want God's justice taken out on me for what I have done. I don't want justice. Not in that way. I need to remind myself of Ephesians 2, that I was dead in my sin, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Or Titus chapter 3 that we just read. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do we long for God to show the mercy and grace that He has shown to us, to those who have wronged us and hurt us and sinned against us? Our family, our friends, our co-workers. And a lot of us are going to be going home in the next couple weeks, right? Being around family. Do you want the same grace that God has extended to you, extended to them? Even though they've treated you terribly, I'm sure you've probably had a part in all of that as well, but can you forgive them? Can you ask God to show them that same grace? To show them the same mercy that He has shown to you? Or do we want justice? Do we want them to get what's coming to them? The very justice we know that we ourselves, we don't want. And we can't handle, Right? We can't handle that. We've seen several times in Joseph's life how he points us to Jesus. And this is another great example. He doesn't attempt to bring about justice on his own terms, but he trusts in the Lord. We're going to see that in the next section where grace triumphs over guilt. In verse 18, Joseph says to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Imagine these Hebrew boys standing before this high Egyptian official and hearing him say, I fear God. They were probably a little taken aback by that. And then Joseph gives them an opportunity to prove themselves. To keep one brother back, 
Benjamin, then I'll know that you're telling the truth, and you shall not die. So they know it's about to be off with their heads if they don't lie here, if they don't listen. Then the amazing confession of guilt, which Joseph hears and understands because they're speaking through an interpreter, but they don't know that he understands them. Verses 21 and 22. They say, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered him, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Interesting here, the word in Hebrew for beg is the word, the same word for to be gracious. So Joseph said to his brothers, be gracious to me. Right? Be gracious to me. He begged them for his life and they did not listen. But there's a confession here. There's a, a clear confession of guilt. And Reuben reminds them, I told you guys, we shouldn't have done this. And now there is a reckoning for his blood. We're going to pay for this. Again, Joseph could have revealed himself right here and said, that's right, you're guilty. You finally admitted it. Booyah, right? Here is your reckoning. But instead, he shows them grace by letting them live and letting them leave. He shows them grace. Simeon stays back. They fill all the bags with grain and then they put money in their sacks. And this is a test that's going to be coming in the next couple chapters. But we see here in verse 28, they, they're on their way back. They realize that money is in the mouth of one of the sacks. And they say, what is this that God has done for, to us? What is this that God has done to us? Now again, this is, this is a confession of, of guilt, right? We're, we've done something wrong. We are being punished for what we have done. What is this that God has done? The answer is that God has exposed their guilt. He has convicted them of their sin, and He has shown them grace through Joseph. This is the first time that any one of Joseph's brothers had mentioned the name of God on their lips. First time, all 11 brothers. None of them have mentioned God or His name up until this point. What has God done? And how convenient, right? Well, we're in trouble now. What is God up to? It's easy to ignore God in your life, maybe until you're in a really tough spot, and then you're forced to pray. The brothers here... They have to be terrified. They have to be afraid for their lives. What do you do? Right? You turn around and go back. You think they're going to kill you because you stole money, right? You told them you were honest men, and now you got this money that's 
not yours. Do you turn around and risk all of you getting killed? Or do you leave knowing that one of your brothers is, is left there and you're just going to have to hope that he has a decent rest of his life in captivity down in Egypt? Do we only pray when we're desperate? When we're in a situation like this at a crossroads? Do we only acknowledge God when we've tried everything that we can think of on our own power, on our own strength, and it's failed, and then we say, okay, now it's time to let God in. Now it's time to trust God. Let us not be so quick to pass judgments on Joseph's brothers. They're going to return home, and they're going to have a lot of explaining to do. Which we're going to see starting in verse 29 that hope triumphs over fear. They get home, they explain to Jacob what has happened, that this man in Egypt, who no one knows yet is Joseph, that he has demanded to bring Benjamin down. And then they all open up their sacks, and what do they find? They're all filled with money. It says they were afraid. You think? Right? They were afraid enough when they saw one bag filled with sack, now, or one sack filled with money. Now they get back and they're all filled with money. And Jacob's like, uh-uh. No, like, no way. You guys are not going back there. I'm not going to send you back there. You're all going to be dead. Joseph's dead. Simeon's dead. Right? Simeon's, Simeon's still alive, but he may as well be dead because Joseph's, Jacob's not sending the rest of his sons back there. So... Simeon's a goner. And now you would take Benjamin. Now you want to take the only one left. Jacob's favoritism and his disregard for his other sons is coming home to roost here. This is the end of the story of the, the first trip down to Egypt. Chapter 42 is the first trip. Chapter 43 is explaining the second trip. The grain in Canaan where they've returned to is all gone. They've eaten it all up. And Jacob tells his sons, go again and buy us a little food. Go back to Egypt and buy some more food. And Judah steps in and says, Dad, hello, newsflash. Like, we're not going back without Benjamin. It's bad enough that they look like thieves, right? If they go back without the, the boy, without the youngest brother who they were told to come back with, no way, right? They're not gonna they're not gonna survive. And Judah offers himself in Benjamin's place in verse 9 of chapter 43. He says, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Don't miss the picture here of substitution. Don't miss the foreshadowing here. Which son is going to be the substitute? Judah. Who's the Messiah going to come through? Judah. God is at work here. In this family, despite all the mess, right? Despite all the sin, 
God is showing us what he's going to do. Now, it's, if we're reading this for the first time, we wouldn't see it. But looking back now, we see it. We see the significance of Judah offering himself as the substitute to be killed. Jacob agrees, finally, to send them. They double the money in the sacks. They bring a whole bunch of presents, a bunch of gifts from Canaan, saying, okay, as best as we can, we're going to try to appease this guy when we get there, because we know we're in trouble. In verse 14, Jacob pleads for mercy. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Jacob's plea for mercy was the only thing that he had left. That's all he could do. God had shown Jacob mercy so many times in his life prior to this point, and all he can do now is cry out to God, cling to God to have mercy on his sons. So they go back, they go back with Benjamin, Joseph sees them coming, he sees Benjamin, he invites them to his house for a feast, and they're afraid, again, there's fear, because of the money that was in their sacks. And they still don't know how it got there, but they know that they are guilty. They confess to the steward of Joseph's house about the money, and look at the response of the steward of Joseph's house in Verse 23. He says, Peace be to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. The word for peace is shalom. The Hebrew word for peace, and it's really a, a huge word that means more than just peace. It means that Everything is going according to God's will. Everything is, is in line. Remember several weeks ago how we talked about Joseph's brother's hatred towards him because he was the favorite son of Jacob and it said they could not speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even say shalom to their brother Joseph. They hated him so much. And now here they are afraid for their lives. And Joseph's representative comes to them and says, Shalom, peace to you. That had to be a shocking thing for them to hear. Peace, right, in this situation? Didn't seem very peaceful. God is in the process of restoring peace to this family by His grace. And the climax of this trip begins in verse 26. Joseph comes home, he comes back, and they bow before him again. And then he asks them some questions, questions of shalom. He inquired about their welfare, that's the word shalom, and said, is your father well, shalom? The old man of whom you spoke. Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. Shalom. He is still alive. They bowed to him again. 
And then Joseph sees Benjamin and says, God be gracious to you, my son. Surely now Joseph is going to reveal himself, right? They brought Benjamin back, they passed the test, Benjamin is alive and well, and Joseph is going to reveal himself. Not yet. The family reunion is not yet complete. And again, we're going to see this next week. But instead, he leaves the room, he goes away, he can't even control himself. He goes into the other room, and he weeps. He weeps for joy that Benjamin is alive. He weeps for joy that his brothers have confessed their guilt and have followed through on what he is testing them to do, right? And they bring Benjamin back, and he's just overwhelmed. When Joseph returns after getting cleaned up, he speaks two words. Now, there's three words in English because we have to translate the definite article and put the thought in there, okay? But in Hebrew, there are two words that Joseph speaks. Serve food. Serve food. The Hebrew word for food is lechem. You gotta get that guttural in there when you say it. Okay, lechem. If you know a little bit of Hebrew, you may know the word, the Hebrew word, lechem, is bread. Serve bread. They eat and they drink together. They have this joyous feast. They look at each other in amazement, it says in verse 33. And then Benjamin gets five times the portion. They drink, and they are married. What a picture this is of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. Bread triumphs over famine. Grace triumphs over guilt. And hope triumphs over fear. This ragtag group of lying, murderous, adulterous brothers are being treated exactly the opposite of how they deserved to be treated. They are us, and we are them, right? We are invited to a feast that we do not deserve to partake of. We are worthy of death. Wondering, have I screwed up too much this time? Did I screw up too much this week that I, I, I shouldn't come to this table? Is this the time that God's going to say, Okay, I've had enough. I've had enough of you. I'm done. Right? I've given you 10,000 chances. No. That's not how He deals with us. The reckoning for blood has come. He came in human flesh, born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Don't miss that. Jesus was born. The bread of life was born in the house of bread. Nailed to a cross so that God's justice would not be poured out on you and me. And raised on the third day, triumphing over the grave, 
so that we could go free and return home. The bread of life triumphs over our spiritual famine and our spiritual hunger. The grace of God in Christ triumphs over our guilt and our shame. And the hope of God in Christ triumphs over our fears of death and judgment. That's what we celebrate when we come to this table. Justice has been satisfied at the cross. Christ was broken. His body was broken. And when we break the bread, we remember that. We remember what He has done. His blood was poured out for us. Let us remember, as we see these stories in the Old Testament, as we see God's grace in their lives, that God has been gracious to us and we need that same grace in our lives. This table is not just for those who are members or in the process of becoming members at Livingstone. It's for anyone who has said, I need Jesus and He is my only hope. I have trusted in Him alone for salvation. And if you're not there yet, that's okay. We would ask you to remain in your seats as we take communion and we would love to talk to you about what it means to trust Jesus for your sins, to have your sins forgiven, to, to really rely on the grace of God alone for your salvation. 